0: The temporary ceasefire in the fighting in Gaza is set to end. Meanwhile, there is an explosion of violence carried out by the Israeli defense forces against Palestinian people in the West Bank. What comes next? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Abby Martin, creator and host of The Empire Files and director and narrator of the documentary film, Gaza Fights for Freedom. Abby Martin, welcome back.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Brian.
0: Thank you. Abby, everything has changed in global politics since October 7th. There has been a sea change in consciousness in the United States. Hundreds of thousands, I would say at this point, millions of people have been in the streets demanding that the U.S. cut aid to Israel, demanding an end to U.S. support for apartheid and occupation, demanding before it happened a ceasefire and now a permanent ceasefire so that the killing spree by the Israeli Defense Forces in Gaza come to an end, not for a moment, but permanently. A huge change in public consciousness In the region, in the Middle East, people are in the streets in all of the countries, including the reactionary Arab regimes that had been strategic partners in one way or another with the Israeli government. And here we are on the sort of the eve of the end or supposed end of the ceasefire. If the fighting is to resume in parts of the Netanyahu cabinet, the right wing, the most right wing parts, it's hard to say what's the most right wing part of that cabinet are insisting that they will abandon Netanyahu and his government will fall unless he goes back to fighting in Gaza. I mean, this kind of recipe, these cascading factors make for a very volatile situation. And again, big picture is unless there's some remedy, some relief, some resolution of the underlying problem for the Palestinian people, even if there is an extension of the ceasefire, this war won't end. I wanna get your thoughts.
1: It won't indeed, Brian, because everyone wants to pretend that history started on October 7th. And as we know, this has been a pressure cooker for decades. Inevitably, something like this was going to happen. And until you get to the root cause of what begets violence, you will not solve what is the problem. And the problem and the root is the occupation and the siege. And it is incredible the historical revisionism that has been going on about, you know, pretending like this is just a war between nations. It's the Hamas-Israel war. In what reality is a war called when you are bombing a population that you have caged, that you are occupying from the outside, that you can cut off arbitrarily and on a whim, water, electricity, fuel, and aid? It is sick, it's depraved, but it's also not uniquely evil. This is a strategy. This is terrorizing the population into a second Nakba, to flee, to be expelled. This is explicitly laid out, the genocidal aspirations from the Israeli cabinet. Dozens of Israeli ministers, uh, officials, army commanders, they have explicitly laid bare their genocidal intent and we should take them at their word. And so all of this placating the American public from US politicians pretending like a genocide is not unfolding before our eyes with full complicity and backing of the US is a disgrace. And it's incredibly inspirational to see tens of millions of people around the world, um, you know, mostly young people who are completely rejecting, rejecting this bipartisan foreign policy consensus from the West that is just greenlighting this, Brian.
0: Yeah, indeed. And we've said on our show, Abby, and I know you and Empire Files have done so much work on this, trying to reach people, educate people not because it's interesting, but because people become a factor. They become the factor. They can create change once they are informed, once they are realizing that they, what they do can make a difference. And once they begin to act, they do act. And when they do act, things change. So American policymakers right now, unlike all of the other previous Israeli wars against the people of Gaza or the West Bank, they have to factor in public opinion at this point. It's not going away. I mean, Joe Biden, all around the country now, people are chanting genocide Joe, genocide Joe. It reminds me of the time when I was a teenager in 1967, when young people started chanting, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? He wasn't a Republican. He wasn't a right winger. He was a liberal. He had been friends or purported to be friends with Dr. Martin Luther King, but he was killing all these people in Vietnam and the country turned against him. He could not run again. It changed the political equation. The Biden administration is in a way stuck because they've completely embraced Netanyahu. Biden keeps saying, I'm a Zionist. He goes to Israel, he hugs and basically has this kind of tearful moment with Netanyahu while Netanyahu is committing this genocide. And the base of the Democratic party, meaning young voters, especially, they're like having none of it. They're like, no, we're not gonna vote for you because even though you're not Donald Trump and we don't want right-wing Republicans to take over, this is not tolerable for us. So here we are in one of those moments where the Democratic Party establishment shows itself as a truly imperialist tool and so brazenly that they're exposed in front of everybody. Anyway, this is a kind of time when public opinion does matter, when what
1: people do does matter. And there, there has to be recourse. And we know the stifling nature of our political system, the two-party duopoly. Both parties speak very clearly on behalf of each other when it comes to foreign policy. There is no differentiation tangibly for the tens of millions of people that are being subjugated under the boot of U.S. empire and U.S. imperialism. So when it comes to situations like these, where a genocide is unfolding with full backing and support and and essentially only because of U.S. support, Israel relies on propagandizing Americans and that's why they direct all of their Hasbro operations to American citizens because they depend on Americans for their weapons and their aid. And so that is why we are so heavily propagandized. But as you just mentioned, the youth, millennials, Gen Z, they are waking up to the nature, the distrustful nature of our corporate media and our political establishment. They see the reality. They are believing what their eyes are telling them, no matter what the corporate media dictates to us on behalf of the ruling class. And there is no other recourse in our society other than voting for president, right? Voting for Congress every two years. There's so little, such little room and avenues to really make political change within the confines of our political establishment that people are doing whatever they can. That's why there's so much dramatic actions being taken. Dozens of people throwing their keys off the Bay Bridge, trying to tell the world because the media is not doing their job there's such dramatic actions being taken because we have to do this, right? People feel like they have to make their voices heard because they're not being covered and the truth is not being covered. And so we saw during the midterms, uh, a lot of young people going out and rejecting the Republican Party. And I think the youth vote really did Consolidate a uh, Democratic, even though the Democrats technically lost. I mean, of course, they painted it as a win because it wasn't as dramatic as a loss as they had anticipated, but that was because of Roe v. Wade. It was a rejection of right wing politics and what took away our reproductive rights. But I do not think that same voting block is going to show up, Brian, because these key demographics that Biden needs and relies on the youth, the Arab vote, Muslims, and Palestinians in this country, those are very very solid key demographics that typically went Democrat and in key swing states like Michigan. Those people aren't going to vote for. It doesn't matter if Trump would have been worse. And honestly, I don't know if he would have been worse other than the veil of humanitarianism might have been dropped. All we know is what Biden is doing now. And that's what people are going to reflect on. And they don't have any other recourse, Brian, other than staying home and letting someone like Trump win because they need to punish Biden. Biden needs to be punished for his support of this genocide.
0: Yeah, when we organized the demonstration in Washington, that was many hundreds of thousands of people on November 4th, the executive director of the CARE organization, the Council of American Islamic Relations, got up and said, you know, we're not gonna vote for Biden in Michigan, in Minnesota. And and he kept going, he listed all the states where there are very significant Arab American voting populations. And the crowd went wild because that's exactly how they felt. I mean, people have the option to go into the street, which they're doing. They have the option to vote for third party candidates, which they do. But as you're pointing out, third party candidates are essentially excluded from the possibility of winning the election. So people don't really think of that. They think of it perhaps as a protest, but not as something that can actually create change. So what can they do? I mean, the options are so limited. So in a way, withholding your vote is one of those, one of those mechanisms. And I think that's what people on November 4th and people around the country are signifying. I wanna to turn to other events that are going on, Abby. And I know you have, because you and the Empire Files made the movie, Gaza Fights for Freedom. You were there, you were in Gaza, you were in the West Bank in all of historic Palestine, your film is amazing. People should get it, they should see it, they should watch it, they should watch it with their friends. You've gone on tours so that you can help sort of illuminate for the American people what the real issues are. You've been doing that for quite a number of years. I was looking at video this morning, right before this show, before we recorded this show, I saw these young Palestinian boys shot dead, shot in the head nine years old, another one is 14 or 15 years old, in Jenin, in the West Bank. And there are so many arrests taking place in the West Bank. The the Israeli establishment is just going into the West Bank. The occupied West Bank, seized at the same time the Gaza was seized in the 1967 war of aggression that Israel waged. And the Palestinians are fighting back, but they're fighting back under circumstances that are very reminiscent of fascism of living under that kind of occupation. Certainly, you know Nelson Mandela and even Jimmy Carter, who's back in the news because of the death of his wife, when he was talking about and declared apartheid to be the case in the West Bank, he said it was actually worse than the South African apartheid, which is really hard to imagine for people who weren't there, but you were there. I wanna just get your take on what's happening right now in the West Bank, and then I wanna play afterwards some video of you interviewing some Israeli citizens back then.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's really important for people who don't fully understand the context because it is crucial to understand what is happening in the West Bank. There is no Hamas reigning governance in the West Bank. There's an Israeli collaborative entity, the Palestinian Authority that was implemented during the Oslo Accords and beyond. And they are seen as a collaborative Israel. They only control just a small portion of Palestinian land within the West Bank. It's cordoned off, there's three territories and the vast majority of Palestinians living there are under brutal Israeli military occupation that is akin to uh, a fascist dictatorship. You cannot be a member of a political party. You can't even hold up a Palestinian flag. We went to a place called Sebastia where Israeli snipers were hiding behind sand dunes waiting to shoot Palestinians dead if they tried to erect a Palestinian flag on the hilltop. This was an area that is just this gorgeous countryside that you you just can't even believe that this kind of brutality is going on on a day-to-day basis. We had gone right after three Palestinians were actually shot and in the hospital for erecting a Palestinian flag. We went back a couple of days later, the Palestinian flag was back up. So it shows just the strength and resilience of Palestinians to continue to want to show their national identity and to be proud of their heritage despite what the consequences are. We saw this prisoner release, right? Brian, I think this exemplifies the brutality of the nature of Israeli occupation in the West Bank, just the prisoners that were asked to be released in exchange for these hostages from Hamas. 300, the vast majority of which were children, right? Children. And the vast majority of those were held without charges or trial because Israel's the only developed country in the world that holds children under military tribunals and just has them sit languishing in military detention. And then when they are convicted of a crime, they have a na- over a 99% conviction rate. And a lot of it's for throwing stones. Kids five years old being rounded up and detained indefinitely and for years and years and years. And look at what happened since the truce started. You had Palestinians being shot dead in Gaza or attempting to return to their homes in the north just to retrieve the dead so they could bury their families. Shot dead by snipers, dozens of them. And in the West Bank, dozens of people have been shot by Israeli snipers, multiple people killed just during the first 24 hours of the truce, just arbitrarily. And ambulances were blocked from giving them medical attention. Now, one young teen was killed yesterday and Israeli forces said, well, he was celebrating, Brian, seen as incitement to terrorism. It is absolutely insane. I mean, just being there, going from checkpoint to checkpoint. One day we were going through a checkpoint at dark in a car full of Palestinian teens and just laser, there was just a makeshift checkpoint that just popped up in the dark and the lasers from automatic weapons just happened to be right, in the passengers and the driver of the car. And if we didn't stop quickly enough, we could have been just yet another casualty of the Israeli occupation that we see day to day all the time. And I think just the incitement to terrorism for celebrating the release of all of these prisoners that have been held without charge and trial speaks to the cruel nature as well, because it's not about, they don't see people as human, right? And when we were there, a farmer, just a Palestinian farmer, you know, cultivating his olive crop was shot dead because he didn't turn around quickly enough at the Israeli soldier. We went to that person's home for the funeral and Israeli soldiers had come up, set up an illegal blockade and then started tear gassing and shooting rubber bullets at the funeral goers. Who does that? Why do you do that? What is the purpose of doing something like that unless it is just unspeakable levels of humiliation and cruelty to the population that you are subjugating? And people really need to understand the nature of this. You know, a lot of people may look at this so called hostage exchange and ask, wait, Israel has hostages too? And that's because of just how many thousands of Palestinians are rounded up completely arbitrarily every year in the West Bank. And they are held without charges or trial. And in fact, you know, since Israel has the complete disproportionate control over the situation, they could easily just arbitrarily round up just as many prisoners as they just released. And in fact, over the course of the last several days since this truce was announced, they actually did round up and detain almost as many prisoners as they released. So this just reveals the true nature of Israel. They can do whatever they want without any consequences. And the killing and the violent expulsion has ramped up dramatically as well since October 7th. You know, just since this year started, Since 2023, over one Palestinian was dying at the hands of Israeli settlers and Israeli forces every single day. Since October 7th, over 200 have been killed. Dozens of villages have been completely expelled at the barrel of a gun. You have Israeli ministers actually handing out assault rifles to violent settlers, saying, let's finish the job. Because while all eyes are on Gaza, you have the ramping up and escalation of the expulsion and ethnic cleansing in the West Bank. And this is very dramatic, and it's very serious, and it needs to stop. It absolutely needs to stop, but it just lays bare what the reality of Israel is. It's not about criticizing policies that Israel does. These policies are central and foundational to what Israel is and what it exists to do.
0: Abby, you were there in 2016, you had a chance to interview some Israeli citizens, they were just basically speaking their mind. I want to play a short clip and then get you to expand on what you found there in terms of attitudes, consciousness, what's going on inside the Israeli popular mood, so to speak. Let's play this clip. I think this is from 2016.
1: But it's really rightfully ours if you look at the history and, at, like, the wars. And we didn't even start a lot of the wars. and We, we conquered these places rightfully like it's ours.
0: 1,400 years later, we come back. Now, I'm not saying that we can blame the people living here for what happened, but you got to accept that that's some kind of divine justice, that their great-great-great-great-grandfathers kicked my great-great-great-grandfather out of here, and then we come back, and all of a sudden they're like, well, no, we don't want it, it's not fair. I think that the Jews came here, they took it, they took this land, and this is our land now, and I don't think there should be here, no Arabs. <laughs> like, Arabs, they want, we gave them Gaza, so they should go live there quietly if they want. They should go back to Iraq, I don't know, to wherever they want. I don't think there's any answer to it. Really? There's only one way, to, like, I would carpet bomb them. You would that carpet
1: bomb them?
0: It's the, only, it's the only way you could deal with it. Like, or, or try to stop them a different way. It it never worked.
1: I think that uh, we're miserable, They're
0: the Arabs uh, make a big and uh, we need to kill the Arabs. <laughs> Abby, she's laughing and talking about, yeah, we have to kill the Arabs and the other guys. Let's, let's carpet bomb them. This other delusional comment that their great-great-great-great-grandfathers took the land and divine justice, My my family has taken it back. I mean, the narrative is false, it's ridiculous, it's ahistorical, it's made up. But what you can't avoid there is the thing is dripping with racism of a genocidal type. In other words, where if the Israeli government went in and dropped a nuclear bomb on Gaza people, at least some of the people you were interviewing would say, good riddance. I mean, and that wasn't after October 7th, this was many years ago. This was the prevailing attitude.
1: Yeah, and you see that there's a carefully curated narrative that's put out there for the American audiences. And that is not what the reality of Israeli society is. Again, like Americans think that there's this hope, this fantasy put out there by reasonable Israeli politicians. Netanyahu is painted as like the Trump type figure. Oh no, that we don't agree with Netanyahu's far right policies, but of course, uh, there should be a two-state solution. You see this talking point regurgitated by American politicians. Israeli officials have not entertained a two-state solution for decades. They have laughed it out of the room. Just look at the Palestine papers. Every single concession that Palestinian leadership made was lapped out of the room, including a fully demilitarized state and essentially giving them Jerusalem. This was never entertained because they always wanted the West Bank. They always wanted the West Bank. They want more than historic Palestine. They want Lebanon, they want Syria. That's why you see no respect for any borders in that area. Israeli society is extremely fascist and extremely racist. If you look at pulling back, go back to 2014, the completely unnecessary, again, I mean, I will call it genocidal onslaught because I've always, you know, genocide doesn't necessarily mean extermination. It means wiping out of a culture the attempt to eradicate the culture of a people. I mean, what else can you call what has been happening in Palestine for the last 75 years? But back in 2014, during Operation Pillar of Defense, another horrific onslaught in Gaza where 2,200 Palestinians died, including 500 children, 95% of Israelis supported that. And that was just in response to nothing compared to October 7th. So if you look at Israeli sentiment today, The vast majority of people think this war is completely justified. And they probably think, I mean, I haven't seen direct polling, but I would imagine that the vast majority, over 95%, agree with completely wiping out Gaza and recolonizing it. When we were there, you know, I spoke to hundreds of Palestinians in the West Bank. Hundreds. That's all I did there for a month was speak to people because I was so fascinated by this narrative that all Palestinians hate Jewish people and it's all driven by antisemitism and they don't want to share their land with anyone and they can't live in peace. It was exactly the opposite, Brian. Every single Palestinian that I met, even ones who lived under settlements that were firebombing their home and throwing rocks and terrorizing these people, they said, why do they have to live right here? There's so much land, they can live anywhere. We just want to live in peace. We don't care if they're there. Just don't move on top of my home. Don't move on top of my village and don't force me to leave. Meanwhile, you enter Jerusalem. And this was a liberal, progressive area of Jerusalem. I went there. The racism was palpable, just walking around. And then you just start talking to people. I mean, this was just a completely random collection of Israelis on the streets. And every single one of them was genocidal. And... What's amazing, Brian, is these are people who are looking into a camera, knowing that you are going to be sharing what they are saying to audiences. This isn't some hidden mic. So if you're that comfortable calling for genocide on camera, what the hell are you saying behind closed doors? And this is completely reflected in polling. Netanyahu is not an aberration. This is just how fascist Israeli society has become. And that is why we call for BDS. Because there is no hope from within Israeli society. Israelis cannot change this government from within. Just look at what has happened in the last seven weeks. 20,000 Palestinians dead, over 8,000 children, thousands more stuck in the rubble. And where are the protests? Where are the protests in Israeli society for the genocide unfolding 40 miles away? You don't see them because they agree with it.
0: Mm, Really, really important. You know, part of that narrative is that first couple where the guy said, my great, 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 great grandfather was driven from here and now we got it back and it's a divine mandate. I have a clip, I played it a couple of weeks ago, but I wanna play it again. It's from Harry Truman. He was president of the United States in 1948 when Nakba, the, the expulsion of the Palestinians happened from their homes. And he talks very openly in this short interview and it's just a few seconds long about what the US actually did. So to think about this concept that it was like different peoples fighting each other for thousands of years and one set lost 1400 years ago, but their ancestors 1400 years later came back and got the revenge and took the land back. And it leaves out completely that the creation of the state of Israel is a colonial project, just like the colonial project in South Africa or, what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Most of the parts of Africa and Asia, the Latin America, the Middle East, all colonies by European capitalism, or in some cases, American capitalism. Even the settler regimes created in the United States, that was British colonialism, or in Australia, British colonialism, New Zealand, British colonialism. So the whole colonial element is taken out of this false narrative, and the Zionist narrative kind of cites the Bible as a real estate deed that can always be called in. Here's Harry Truman,
1: 1948,
0: talking about what actually happened.
1: We had several other uh, people in the country, even among the Jews, the Zionists particularly, who were against anything that was to be done if they couldn't have the whole of Palestine and everything handed to them on a silver plate so they wouldn't have to do anything. It couldn't be done. We had to take it in small doses. You can't move uh, five or six million people out of a country and fill it up with five or six million more and expect both sets of them to be pleased. I
0: mean, that's pretty pretty right out there and explicit, Abby.
1: It is. And you know what else has been explicitly laid out is, you know, RFK Jr. just kind of spoke on behalf of the ruling class about the utility of Israel for U.S. empire because, you know, pro-Israel people or, you know, critics of, basically anti-Zionism, will say, why are you so obsessed with Israel? Like, it's the only Jewish state in the world. Why can't you just let us be? And it's like, well, first of all, I'm an American citizen, and this is an extension. This is the most entrenched extension of U.S. power in the Middle East. And if you look at someone like Joe Biden a couple decades ago, proudly proclaiming as such in Congress, saying if Israel didn't exist, we would need to create her to serve our interests. And so it really lays bare that Israel is nothing but an extension of U.S. empire, and it's a colonial outpost. Unfortunately, it's become a rogue state. I don't even think the U.S. can get away with assassinating, you know, targeted assassinations of over 50 journalists and and killing their entire families in an all-out war on medical infrastructure and hospitals. But alas, here we are, Brian, where the utility of Israel for U.S. empire outweighs even how horrific backing this egregious genocide is for uh, U.S. politics.
0: Abby, in, in 2018, people in Gaza, very close to the same wall that was breached on October 7th, they staged weekly demonstrations every Friday what was called the great march of return, meaning the right to go back, the right to return to your village, to your home, the homes that you were driven from, as Harry Truman explained, the US displaced six million people purposely, people wanted to go back, and the protests were completely peaceful, completely nonviolent, and Israeli snipers shot them dead. These were nonviolent people. There was no outrage in, Israel, in the Israeli population about the killing of nonviolent protesters at that same wall week after week, and hundreds were shot dead, and they kept coming. It was like amazing level of courage and tenacity and steadfastness. There was no great outrage at all in the U.S. corporate media. The U.S. media always says Hamas is terrorists because they use violence. Well, when the Palestinians in Gaza used nonviolent tactics, they were murdered or they were terribly wounded by gunfire, by sniper fire. And there was no outrage, there was no discussion. The only time the U.S. government and the U.S. media actually paid attention was when there was violence. When there was nonviolence and it was met with violence by the Israelis, no, it was all passe, no big deal. I mean, you've been covering this. You were there in 2016. You made this movie, Gaza Fights for Freedom. You were following what was happening in the Great March of Return. I mean, when people actually see what's gone on and you make nonviolent protest impossible because you you kill the nonviolent protesters, it makes armed struggle inevitable. I mean, you can caricature it, you can demonize it, you can say whatever you want about it, you can call it terrorist. But if you make nonviolent protest impossible when people are living under these conditions, it would be ridiculous and a fantasy to think that the struggle will stop, and it would be more realistic to understand that it will inevitably morph into
1: armed struggle. Exactly, Ryan. We see what happens when Palestinians non-violently resist. It doesn't matter what they do, and how on earth could you look at a population of 2.3 million people living in these conditions and think that they should lay down and die? Because that's what. Israelis and that's what Americans and that's what the West at large essentially think that they should do. They should be polite victims of their own oppression. Lay down and die. Don't you dare resist. Don't you dare resist peacefully. Because in 2017 and 2018, tens of thousands of Palestinians went to this artificial border fence that prevents them from entering their ancestral lands. It's a fortified fence lined with Israeli snipers that will shoot to kill. If you wander too close to the fence, it's called the no go zone. And so tens of thousands of Palestinians peacefully marched up to that zone. I mean, with courage that I will never understand braved bullets, sniper fire. 8,000 Palestinians were shot with live ammunition. Actually, tens of thousands of people were shot with live ammunition. 8,000, I think, just in, in a couple of weeks. Over 200 Palestinians were actually shot dead, including women children, disabled people, journalists, and medics. I mean, even in an army, in an actual battle between sides in a legitimate like battle and war, shooting those people would be violations of the Geneva Conventions. But in just a peaceful protest where you have medics trying to tend to the wounded, these are all egregious war crimes. And they were all documented on camera, Brian, but the world completely ignored it. And fast forward to today, all the people involved in the Great March of Return. I mean, they're Ahmed Artema, the organizer of the Great March of Return, an incredible poet, peaceful guy, super chill guy. I'm I'm in contact with him all the time. His house was targeted. His whole family was bombed. He lost five family members and his 10-year-old son was murdered. And he's in the hospital right now with second degree burns with his other two children. And it is so traumatizing to think that that is what we are told all the time. Where's the Palestinian Gandhi? Where are the nonviolent resistors? Well, you're murdering them systematically. They're dying because of you. You are bombing them. All the journalists that they're killing, targeting, who else can get away with this? Who else can do this with impunity? They're killing the truth. And that even came out, like I think in a political article, it said, we're Biden. And his cohorts were scared that journalists were going to get in and show the, the complete devastation and ruin in Gaza during the truce, and that that might shape American minds, Brian. That's what they're scared of. They're scared of Americans turning against this colonial genocidal project because they don't want us to see the truth. That's why they're systematically taking out the journalists. They want everyone to die. They don't want any semblance of civic society left. That's why they're taking out all the best and brightest in Gaza. All the staff of the hospitals, the surgeons. I just saw a video today of NICU babies that were left to die from Israeli soldiers that were invading the hospital. Who does that? Who, with any shred of humanity, can see babies laying helpless and leave them to die? That is what's going on. And they don't want us to see this. And that's why the disgusting the disgusting appendages of US empire, these so-called journalists that are essentially just stenographers for the Israeli media can just go up there and just repeat lies. How dare they call themselves journalists? How dare they? How could you be a journalist and not with every fiber of your being speak out against this country, this government that is taking out your colleagues? How could they do that? I still don't understand. Brian, and you know, going back to your last question about this concept that it's this ages old battle based on religious strife. It is insulting to our intelligence. Christian, Muslims and Jews all lived in historic Palestine. It wasn't until colonizers started to come that problems started to arise. It wasn't until they tried to create a state on top of another people based on ethnic cleansing. And look, yes, a genocide happened here hundreds of years ago, it was horrific. And we have to acknowledge what this country is founded on, if that were happening now, if violent, bloody conquest was happening in my backyard, you sure as hell know that I would not be accepting that. And none of us should accept this. It's happening in real time. It's being live streamed for all the world to see. And it's our duty to stand up and do everything we can to oppose it because history will judge us. History will judge this moment. And it will ask all of us, what did we do? What did we do?
0: One of the points that you are just making, Abby, is emphasizing the colonial, again, the colonial character, the false narrative that this is a struggle between peoples or a struggle between religions, it masks the colonial question. And I just want to remind our audience that in 1917, when World War I was raging, and when Lebanon and Palestine and Syria, in Egypt, and Iraq, the countries that we know under those names, they were all part of the Ottoman Empire. They were under the domination of the Ottoman Empire. And the British government, which was fighting against the Ottoman Empire, which was part of the Central Powers in World War I, made an agreement with France and with Tsarist Russia that was called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, to divide up the territories, the lands of the defeated Ottoman Empire, so that France would get Lebanon and Syria, Britain would get Palestine and Egypt, it would get Jordan. In other words, the imperialists divided up the entire Middle East, the Arab world for themselves, to colonize that part of the world. The only reason we know about the sykes Pico Treaty is that when the communist Soviet revolution happened in October, 1917, one of the first acts of that government under the leadership of Lenin was to expose the secret treaties that the Tsar had signed, including the Sykes-Picot Treaty. So it exposed the colonial character of what was coming. Then in 1917, the British foreign secretary, Balfour, issues the so-called Balfour Declaration, where he announces on behalf of British colonialism, that Palestine has been selected by British colonialism to be a national homeland for Jews. And then he informs the Zionist leadership that this is what's coming. So when you look at the genesis of the creation of the state of Israel, it's not the battles that took place 1400 years ago, you know, where the last so-called Jewish kingdom was defeated in like 500 BC, and it was a small kingdom at that. This is the handiwork of British colonialism. And for Americans to not know this and be deliberately sort of kept in the dark by the U.S. mainstream media is only to maintain this false fantasy. But everybody in Palestine knows this history. Everybody in Jordan knows it. Everybody in Egypt knows it. The only people who don't know it are the Americans and the Israeli population, which intentionally refuses to acknowledge it because they prefer the... The other narrative where God gave them this land and so no one can take it from them. Anyway, again, I want to just pursue this a little bit more because getting to the roots of the colonial character of the struggle seems to me to be essential in terms of political education.
1: It is. And I mean, it reveals the nature of what Israel is when you look at what they're doing now which is expanding 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 i mean completely violating the sovereignty of Syria and Lebanon you have israeli commanders declaring gleefully i mean which is so weird because they just suffered this horrific national tragedy but they seem pretty gleeful and happy about fulfilling their goals to take whatever land that they want under the cover of this war right recolonize retake over gaza because to them it was always theirs And Israelis that I spoke to told me that. Also, they were like, we gave them Gaza um, as if it was theirs to give. And this is just the mentality. I mean, when you are rooted in prophecy, in ancient prophecy based on biblical teachings, I mean, you're not rooted in reality, right? The reality is very obvious. When you're taking someone's land at gunpoint and when you're purging them, when you're violently expelling indigenous people... That's the root of the conflict. it's it, It's so babyish and that we're told that this is just, oh, it's too complicated, Brian. It's way too complicated. You'll never understand it. And that's why the obfuscation is so necessary from like the Israeli propaganda apparatus. Because like, for example, the errant missile that they claimed was from Islamic Jihad that took out the Ali Arab Hospital, they want Americans who just kind of cursory, like read headlines and then forget about things in the 24-hour news cycle to see something like, oh no, Palestinian rockets actually killed this many people. Because then it's just so complicated. You're like, oh, well, I guess they're just killing each other. I guess Palestinians have the means to kill that many people too, without really zooming out and being like, hold on, this is a completely disproportionate one-sided war where you are caging millions of people, depriving them of basic human necessities for survival, depriving them of basic mobility, and then claiming, oh, they should just leave. Why won't they just flee? Oh, we gave them water, Ryan. We're the good guys um, and we can take it away. It's all of these contradictory thoughts at once, but for people who don't want to invest more than just headlines, they just think, oh, it's just so complicated without just understanding actually the simple nature of it. It's a violent, bloody conquest that has been ongoing for 75 years, and they haven't finished the job. They haven't finished the job. And that is why this fantasy of a two-state will never come to fruition because they've already completely atomized the West Bank. They've taken over it. There's 700,000 illegal squatters there that have forcefully expelled Palestinians from their home. The right of return versus the right to return. I mean, it's so crazy. You mentioned apartheid. It is so obvious. Israel's committing a crime against humanity by employing an institutionalized, segregated, oppressive state, right, under a military occupation where there's dual laws for Palestinians and Israelis, and then they're also employing the greatest crime against humanity that a state can commit, the crime of genocide. So yes, we can talk about context all day, and it's very important to do so, but right now, it's just crazy to me that we're even talking about anything else in the Western media when Israel's committing a clear textbook case of genocide, as well as the crime of apartheid, which is a crime against humanity. And for some reason it took decades for human rights organizations to catch up on that.
0: Indeed, indeed. I couldn't agree with you more. You don't actually need in some ways to read history at all, even though we encourage everyone to do it, because you should be able to see with your own eyes what's actually happening. But that in a way is the role of the the capitalist media and the agitation propaganda wing of the capitalist class to, to sort of confuse people who should be able to see clearly. Like that, I'm so glad you raised the thing about the hospital because that went on for four or five days where the whole, like the dominant news story was, who actually blew up the hospital? Was it the Israelis, which the Hamas-controlled health ministry said, that's what how the US media put it, as opposed to just the Gaza health ministry? Or was it an errant rocket that misfired, sent by Islamic Jihad or one of the Palestinian factions? And so that became the debate, and I can remember talking to people about it, where I was trying to talk to them about the big issue, and they were like, yeah, but look what, the Palestinians probably did that. That's what most of the stations are saying right now. At the same time, there was no question that the Israelis were targeting every hospital. Right. It was such an obvious disconnect, like they're bombing every hospital, but the debate in the American media was, what blew up this one hospital? Was it a Palestinian rocket that misfired? I mean, it's so neglectful and so obviously propaganda on the part of the US capitalist media designed to enslave the brains of Americans who if their brains are liberated and can just sort of see what's obvious, they know that they need to stand on the side of justice. And that means to stand with the Palestinian people. You know, there's another element of this. And as we're moving towards the end, Abby, I wanna to talk to you about it because you are a direct participant in this. You have made the movies, you've done the interviews. Empire Files is a, is a requisite media outlet that people need to support because your work is so amazing, so important. But you, know, you were also targeted because you were going to speak at a conference, not about Palestine per se, in the state of Georgia. And the state of Georgia, like so many other states, have these laws that criminalize people who wanna boycott or engage in nonviolent protests like the boycott of Israel. And the entity that was hosting the conference that you were going to speak at, sent you a contract that stipulated that you had to pledge that you would never be part of a boycott against the state of Israel. So here you have state legislatures in the United States telling Americans, if you dare to use nonviolent protest methods against an apartheid state like the state of Israel, we're gonna try to ruin your career. We're gonna criminalize you. Let's just talk about what happened in the state of Georgia. I know you carried out, engaged in a lawsuit, but it's not just the state of Georgia. These kind of laws exist all over the United States, again, against peaceful protest. And the Israeli government has a big hand in formulating these laws.
1: Yes, Brian, it's true. In over half of the states in the country, there are laws in the books that say that you cannot work in the state as an independent contractor, which means a substitute teacher, construction worker, the list goes on and on. If you do not pledge loyalty to the state of Israel, literally, I mean, it's in a contract for you to sign. And I mean, I was floored to get such a contract, Brian. I'd been covering these anti-BDS clauses for a long time, these laws during my journalistic career. And I was completely taken aback to be given one myself when I was simply slated to speak at Georgia Southern. Of course, I refused to sign The contract and the entire conference fell apart. The organizers just ghosted me. And I was just completely shocked at how this had happened. I thought, what on earth is going on? This is supposed to be academic freedom. College campuses should be a safe place to discuss issues like this. And unfortunately, they succumbed to the pressure and canceled the conference. So I decided to sue the state and to try to challenge these flagrantly unconstitutional laws, because in other states, judges have ruled in favor of the plaintiffs and actually said these laws on the books are unconstitutional, because they are. They are unconstitutional. The judge initially ruled in my favor, Brian, but, you know, unfortunately what happened because of the incredible influence of the Israeli lobby, Israeli state legislatures actually go around and try to lobby independent states to either uphold the laws or to put them on the books in the first place. So what happened is when I challenged the law, an Israeli consulate official actually came to the Georgia state legislature and tried to lobby to up the cap to $100,000 because the initial law says if you're making $1,000 in a state, you have to sign this anti-BDS pledge. So they basically changed the law to make it so my lawsuit was moot because initially I won the lawsuit. And the judge ruled in my favor. He said, yeah, this, this doesn't make sense. This undermines our free speech rights because the right to boycott, this goes back to the Montgomery bus boycotts. I mean, boycotting entities that are oppressive, right? And this is our right. This is our fundamental right. This is enshrined in our First Amendment. Boycotts, the right to boycott. And so the judge ruled in my favor and then later ruled in the favor of the Israeli government to say, actually, let's just change the law so that it only applies to people making 100,000. So I still think that I won because you can't put a price on free speech, but unfortunately the law is still in the books, Brian, because the Israeli lobby is so powerful and they have exerted so much influence over state legislatures that not only people like Richie Torres, that congressman in like the poorest district in the entire country, and all he does is tweet about Israel and that's all he talks about because that's the only money that he gets to his political campaign. I mean, that's where we're at, is that there's this conflation with anti-Semitism to the point where people are so terrified on the liberal side of the spectrum that they do not want to stand up to Israel because they know APAC is going to invest tens of millions of dollars into their political opponents. You know, even if they're more conservative, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't even matter if it's about Israel or not, they will get them on other issues to try to drive them out of office. We see what's happening with the squad. AIPAC is investing tens of millions of dollars to try to drive them out of office because they dared to speak up and call genocide what it is and call for a ceasefire. Wow. The audacity of a Palestinian congresswoman calling for a ceasefire to stop the genocide of her people. So that's what we're dealing with, Brian. We're dealing with a completely rogue state with a extremely influential lobbying force and lobbying arm and a completely acquiescent political body that is so scared of losing their dollars, that they will not stand up for what's right. And that is why tens of millions of people have to force themselves in front of their politicians and political representatives to say, you must listen to us. There's this huge disconnect. The overwhelming majority of Democratic voters, like 80 plus percent, and the overwhelming majority of Republican voters want to seize fire. We don't want to see more kids be slaughtered in cold blood with our tax dollars. But look at the political representatives and the political class. They couldn't care less. They are so detached from the reality of this country and what people want because they're so they're so concerned with lining their pocketbooks and securing their political futures. It is disgusting. And I, I mean, I don't even have adjectives to describe what I'm seeing anymore, Brian. It's beyond the pale and it needs to stop. And we need to drive all of these people out of office and we need to start organizing for something more revolutionary than what we have right now. Because this is, it is cartoonish, the level of Israeli propaganda. It is insulting to have it repeated back to us by our politicians and our media. And I can't take it anymore. I am so angry. And you know, I have to mention this, every single person involved in Gaza Fights for Freedom, the videographers, the producers, all of them have been rendered homeless. All of them have had family members killed And I am scared for their lives day to day. I don't know how much more we can take. This truce needs to be permanent. There needs to be a permanent ceasefire. And we need to just invest everything that we can into rebuilding Gaza and removing the settlements from the West Bank and actually forcing a peaceful diplomatic resolution because it is never going to end, Brian. And the morality is, you know, we can't trust the morality of the oppressive occupying force to stop this. It needs to be forced on them.
0: I mean, the the Secretary General of the United Nations, Gutierrez, said this morning, I think, that 45% of the homes in Gaza are damaged, 80% are now displaced people, 80% out of 2 million. If 20,000 are dead, it's probably more, but 20,000 out of 2 million, a population of 2 million, that's 1%. If 1% of Americans had been killed in 7 weeks, US has a population of 330 million, that would be 3.3 million Americans dead, killed, murdered in a 7 week period. That would constitute a genocide. We have to keep fighting and people need resources. I want to recommend people get your film, of course watch and subscribe to support Empire Files, but if people want to find Gaza fights for freedom, your film How do they do that?
1: GazaFightsForFreedom.com. It's available in multiple languages. You can watch for free. It's also on YouTube. Check it out. And Brian, these BDS laws that they're putting in the books, it's a preemptive attempt because they know the tide of justice is turning. They know where American sentiment is at. They know where the youth is at. We don't believe them anymore. We're fighting for justice. We're fighting for what's right. And that's equality for all Palestinian brothers and sisters that are living under this oppression, Brian, and that is why these BDS laws are being enacted. That's why they're trying to ban JVP, Jewish Voices for Peace. I mean, the audacity to actually try to ban Jewish-led organizations on campus and to try to threaten students' futures if they are doing what's right. We can't let this happen. We have to stand on the right side of justice and history. Thank you so much for letting me come on.
0: Emmy Martin, thank you so much. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News.